Well, good evening. It's lovely to see you all. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Ian. Uh, I'm one of the ministers here. It's a great privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this evening. Uh, let's pray, shall we, as we come to have a think about that word that was read to us just a moment ago. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you that in your great kindness you speak to us still today through your living and active word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we open this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, and as we spend some time dwelling on the words that were written all those years ago, that your Holy Spirit, who inspired those very words, would be with us now, helping us to listen, helping us to understand, helping us to be shaped and changed by them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 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 Well, uh, a while ago, I read, I say a while ago, it was quite a few years ago now, actually, I read a book uh, about a guy called William Grimshaw, uh, which is not a very appealing name, is it? But there we go, that was his name, William Grimshaw. Uh, Grimshaw was um, uh, alive in the 1700s. Uh, He was a contemporary of John Wesley and George Whitfield, famous evangelists, if you've heard of them, I'm sure uh, many of you have. Uh, And he lived, he he was a minister... Uh, in a place called Haworth, which is, uh, if your geography of Yorkshire is any good, it's kind of midway between uh, Burnley and Bradford. Okay, So that, that's where he was, that's who he was. Uh, and, and I read in this book, the, the story goes that um, one day he was walking in the lanes around Haworth, and uh, he came across this guy who was riding towards him in the other direction on a horse. And it just so happened that this guy was John Wesley. Uh, and, it, and they'd never met before. Uh, he had no idea who he was. I, I don't think Grimshaw had even heard of John Wesley at this point. Uh, but they, they met, were kind of passing in the lane, and, uh, and they got chatting. Uh, and Grimshaw said to him, uh, are, are you a, a Christian? To which John Wesley said, yes, yes, I am. Um, and Grimshaw said, uh, as a Christian man, do you pray? And Wesley said, yes, yes, I pray. And uh, Grimshaw, he, he had a bit of a funny sort of pastoral way about him. And he said, well, well, if you claim to be a Christian man and you pray, show me. Prove it to me. Get down off your horse and kneel down here in the lane and, and show me how you pray. Which is not a strategy we'll be employing here anytime soon. You'll be glad to hear. But, but that's what he did. And remarkably, uh, Wesley got down from his horse and prayed there in front of him. I have no idea what he prayed, but obviously Grimshaw was satisfied uh, by this public prayer, and he, uh, they became great friends, um, and actually uh, Grimshaw ended up being one of the founding fathers of the Methodist movement in um, northeast England. Now, I wonder how you would feel uh, if you were put in that position, if we decided to make that, uh, I don't know, like an annual test of the veracity of our faith here at Christchurch Harbinen. I suspect many of us would be terrified, uh, and you don't need to worry because we're not going to do that. Because I'm not convinced that your ability to pray in public is necessarily a great demonstration of the genuineness of your faith. But what I think is probably a much better demonstration of the genuineness of your faith and the vitality of your relationship with God is actually how you pray in private. I think that's probably a much better indication, isn't it? Uh, I think probably private prayer sits alongside private prayer Bible reading uh, and personal evangelism as 
kind of a, a trio of things that as Christians, at best, we probably feel like we did better at, uh, and at worst, sometimes we can feel really guilty about, can't we? I know that's been uh, my experience at various times. Uh, and there could be any number of reasons for that, couldn't there? Well, we find it hard to pray privately. Uh, sometimes, I wonder, and I, I have experienced this myself as well, just option paralysis is a bit of an issue, isn't it? I mean, there are no end of the number of people and causes we could pray for, and there's no end to the number of good things we could pray. And so sometimes we just don't even know where to begin. Uh, well, if that is you today, uh, I, let me encourage you that Paul has some really helpful words for us. Um, real words to, to help us and encourage us in our personal prayer. Um, as is often the case at the beginning of his letters, he begins by sharing with the people he's writing to what it is that he's praying for them. And I think uh, those prayers of Paul and other apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ himself are wonderful models for us. Wonderful patterns for us to emulate as we seek to pray uh, for ourselves, for our families, for those in our church and further afield as well. And so we're going to spend some time today having a look at what it is Paul prays uh, for these Thessalonian Christians. Uh, and let me say as well, if you're here this evening and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't switch off thinking, oh, I, I don't know what's going to be here for me this evening. Uh, I hope you'll see as we go through, there's plenty here of relevance to you as well as we get through uh, this passage. Uh, before we kind of get into it, let me just say a couple of uh, words by way of introduction to this passage and this letter. This is the first of five um, sermons in a series looking at two Thessalonians. That's two Thessalonians, Phil, not one. Uh, two Thessalonians. Uh, Paul is writing in all likelihood from Corinth, where he was based um, at the time he was writing this, uh, to a church that he helped to found. We saw that, didn't we, in the first reading that Anthony brought to us a minute ago in Acts 17. We hear about the founding of the church in Thessalonica, and we see that right from the beginning there was real trouble and persecution there, and that's something that Paul picks up on in the first letter and the second letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, we're looking at the second letter. That's the second letter that we have remaining. It was probably at least a third one, and, and maybe some others as well. Um, but, but the themes that we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks are kind of picking up on and developing some themes from the first letter. So if you get the chance over the next few weeks, I'd really encourage you to be reading First Thessalonians as well. Uh, that'll help you as we think through these things. Uh, right, so that's where we are. Uh, as I said, we're going to be focusing in particular on prayer um, and our personal prayer and what we can learn from Paul today. So what is it that we learn? Well, the first thing uh, is this. first thing we learn from Paul's prayer is to thank God. We learn to thank God. And we see that uh, in verses 3 and 4. Uh, as is so often the case, uh, Paul, when he's writing to a church, uh, is thanking God for three things in particular. And those things are faith, Love and hope. Faith, love and hope. Just look down at verse 3 with me and we'll see those. Uh, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so. Why? Because of your faith. Your faith is growing more and more. There we go. As is so often the case, he thinks of churches and he, he thanks God for their faith. Uh, what else? Uh, and, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. He's heard this report that their love for one another is increasing, so he thanks God for that. And I mentioned uh, hope as well. Well, we don't see the word hope here, but we do see perseverance and endurance, which are prompted by the hope that they have 
in the gospel. At verse 4, therefore, amongst God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. Faith, love and endurance, three things that Paul gives thanks for here. And it's interesting, isn't it, to note that he gives thanks to God for these things, not to them. He doesn't write to them and say, guys, thank you so much for your faith, which is growing and growing. Thank you so much for the way that you're loving one another more and more. Thank you so much for the way that you're enduring, even in spite of the trials and the persecutions you're facing. What are we going to learn from that? Well, I think it's that these things ultimately don't come from the Thessalonians, do they? They come as gifts from God, faith and love and endurance in trials things that God produces in his people. And so Paul uh, gives thanks to God for them. And I think, just as a kind of little side application here, I think there's something there, isn't there, for us in terms of the way that we praise one another (laughs) as Christians. If we see good, encouraging things in one another, it's good to point them out and to encourage one another with those things. I love it when people say, oh, I was really encouraged to see this in you. But it's much better if people say, I thank God for that thing I've seen in you. Because it reminds us, it encourages us, but it reminds us that actually it's not ultimately something that comes from us. It's a bit like when um, we have this custom in the UK, don't we? If you go for a meal uh, and you uh, enjoy the meal, uh, what do you say to the waitress or the waiter who served you? You say, oh, pass my compliments to the chef. Because ultimately he's the one who's responsible, not the person who's actually put it on your table. And it's the same here. We're to thank God for the things we see. And brothers and sisters, this is a really good starting point for us in our prayers, for ourselves, for our families, for one another, for Christians we know elsewhere. If we see any evidence of faith in them and the increase of faith, if we see any evidence of love for God's people, if we see any uh, evidence that they're enduring in hardship or triumphs, let's give thanks to God for that, shall we? That's a good thing for us to do when we come to the Lord in prayer. So that's the first thing. Uh, give thanks. Second thing, praise God. And we see that in verses uh, 5 through 10. Uh, now it might not be immediately obvious as you read these verses that that's what, that's what Paul's doing here, praising God. Uh, and I think that's in part because that's not the only thing he's doing here. I think actually he's doing three things. I think he's taking the opportunity to teach the Thessalonians. Uh, he's taking the opportunity to encourage them as well as at the same time praising God. And again, what Paul's doing here is something that's customary for him. He can't help himself so much of the time. He's thinking about one thing and talking about something, and it makes him think of something related, and he just gets so excited about it, he goes off on a tangent about it and praises God for it. And I think that's what he's doing here. So what is this thing that he's praising God for? Well, it is the justice of God's judgment. That's what he goes off on a tangent about here. Look at verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. You see, when Paul is contemplating the faithful perseverance, the endurance of these Christians in the face of persecution, that contemplation leads him to think about God's justice and the justice that will come in the judgment and to praise God for that. I don't know if 
the coming judgment is something that often moves you to praise. It might seem like a bit of a strange thing, doesn't it? But that's what it does for Paul. And we'll think a bit more about that in a moment. But before that, let's just uh, spend a moment, sh- shall we, thinking about the judgment. If Paul goes off on this tangent, let's go with him and follow him for a moment and see what it is that he has to say. Uh, when is this judgment going to come? Well, we see in uh, the second half of verse 7, he says this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. This is the second coming of the Lord Jesus. This is the end of the age. This is when history is wrapped up and the rest of eternity begins in the new heavens and the new earth. That's when this will happen. Uh, what is it? That will happen at the judgment. What's going on? Well, uh, I've kind of tried to kind of condense this and help us work through it just by uh, having a little table that we'll work through. So maybe maybe if we turn the lights off for this bit. Sorry, Heather. Thank you for jumping. Okay. Uh, so so let's think about it, shall we? In terms of the judgment, uh, what about the who? The who of the judgment? Uh, well, on that final day when Jesus comes again, uh, everyone will be raised, and we will be separated into two groups. The church and not the church. The people of God and not the people of God. We were thinking this morning, weren't we, about the fact that the church is not a building, it is the people. And that is what will come about in the judgment. Jesus says he will separate the sheep from the goats. The church and not the church. Uh, What is the evidence that that judgment will be based on? Well, um, you might want to kind of follow through. Can we have the next uh, slide? What is the evidence? What, what, it, what is it that uh, will be used to, as the basis of this judgment? Well, for the church, uh, verse 5 begins, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And what is the this? What is what he's just been talking about? Their faith, their love, their perseverance in the face of trials. Those things are evidence of the, of the fact that people are part of the church. Not only that, he goes on in verses 5 and 6 to talk about the fact that they're suffering for the kingdom, that they're being troubled for the faith that they have. But actually, ultimately, all of these things, their faith, their love, their endurance, the suffering that they're experiencing, are all a result of verse 10, the true foundation uh, of the reason they will be considered to be part of the church on the day of judgment. Look at how verse 10 continues, uh, ends, sorry. Uh, This includes you, the marvelling at Jesus, the praising of Jesus when he comes again, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. That is the basis on which the judgment will come. And because they have believed the apostles' testimony about Jesus, because they have believed the gospel, they exhibit faith, love, endurance, suffering for the kingdom. Those things are evidence. And yet we have to consider as well, what is the the evidence against that will condemn those who are not of the church. Well, we see that for some in verse 6, they have troubled God's people. They have persecuted the church. But actually, uh, just as these things kind of work themselves out in response to this, this is really just a consequence of these things here. You see, ultimately, the judgment will be based on how people responded to God and the gospel. Verse 8 says he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So that is the the evidence that the judgment will be based on. But what is the outcome? We can have the, the next slide. 
Well, verse 6, the outcome for the church will be justice. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, Paul says. At verse 7, they will find relief from their suffering for all eternity. Verse 9, it's implied that they will enjoy God's presence forever. And verse 10, we read that they will glorify and marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. And yet, what is the outcome for those who are not of the church? Well, they too will experience justice, but it will not be in the way that the church does. They will be paid back trouble for the trouble that they have caused. They will be punished, verse 8 tells us. And, and what will that punishment look like? Well, verse 9 is very clear. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Why is God's judgment a source of praise to him? Because when the judgment comes, justice will be done. Justice will be done. Thanks, Heather. We can write back on. You see, those who have believed in God on that day, they will be rewarded by God. Those who have exhibited faith and love for God's people, those who have endured hardships for Christ, those who have experienced those things now, they will be rewarded in all eternity. And yet, those who have rejected God, well, they too will be rejected by God. And in that sense, really the punishment fits the crime, doesn't it? Those who have rejected God and his people now will experience rejection by God for all eternity. And can I just say to you, by way of application, if I'm going to speak particularly to any children and young people who are here today, do you realise what a massively privileged position you are in? Growing up in a family, as many of you have, where one or both of your parents know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and have taught you this testimony of the apostles and have encouraged you to follow the Lord Jesus. What a massive privilege that is. And can you see what a terrible thing it would be to turn away from God and to reject him? Would you expect anything else on that last day but for God to turn away from you in rejection? Please don't let that be your story on that final day. But can I open it up more broadly if there are any here who who are not yet following Jesus what a privilege to be here this evening to receive this warning of what's to come don't go on in rejecting God because there is an offer of acceptance for you if you will turn in repentance and faith to Jesus but there are probably those of us here this evening who we, we know these things and we believe these things, and yet we still find it hard to praise God for these things. I wonder if that's some of us here this evening. And, and let me say, I understand, I get that. There could be any number of reasons for that. I think sometimes, for many of us, the reason we find that hard is because we think, if we're honest, God, if I were you, I wouldn't have done it this way. God, if I were you, I wouldn't condemn the wicked 
Why can't you just forgive everyone? And let me say, if that's how you feel this evening, I I understand that. And, And you shouldn't be surprised that you feel that way. It is a terrible thing, the judgment that is coming. And if we have a sense of compassion, then we should feel something of that. God, the scriptures say that God does not delight in what is and what is coming to, the, to those who, who do not turn to him in repentance. But also we shouldn't be surprised if in that sense we feel like we disagree with God because actually that happens in all kinds of relationships, doesn't it? We know this from our human relationships, right? Sometimes we will find, whether relationships with, uh, I don't know, a spouse or our kids or... Uh, our family or our friends or our work colleagues, sometimes we disagree, don't we, about what is right and wrong. We have that disagreement. That is true in every relationship. And it would be odd, wouldn't it, if the God who invites us into a relationship with him, if we didn't find that same thing, that we, we disagree with him about what is right and wrong. The thing is, when we find ourselves in that kind of situation in human relationships, what do we do? Well, assuming that we don't just have a massive row and never speak to each other again, normally it works out in one of three ways, doesn't it? There's three things that we can normally do if we disagree with someone about what is right or wrong. The first thing that we could do is we could agree to disagree. We could say, okay, look, we've talked about this, I've listened, I've understood your point of view, you've listened to me, I've understood yours. You still think that, I still think that. Let's just agree to disagree. That's one option in our human relationships. Uh, We might find sometimes that's not possible. And then we have to find a middle way, a compromise, which isn't ideal for either of us, but, you know, this will help us to move forward. We'll we'll compromise, we'll find a middle ground. Sometimes we might be in a situation uh, where actually one of us, as we share and we listen to each other, one of us actually convinces the other one that we're right. And so one of us changes our position and we go, actually, no, I I think I was wrong and I think you're right. And now I'm going to agree with you. Any of those three things can happen in our human relationships, can't we? The thing is, when it comes to our relationship with God, not all of those options are available to us. We can't agree to disagree with God about what is right and wrong. He is the one who decides what is right and wrong. We can't make a compromise with God and try and find some sort of middle way that we're both happy with. The only option that's left available to us is the third. That one of us changes our minds and moves our position. And brothers and sisters, that is not going to be the Lord. So can I encourage you, if that's how you feel, if you feel, Lord, I wouldn't do it that way, then keep going to him and keep talking to him about that and pray about that. But recognise that ultimately, if we disagree with God about what is right and wrong, it's not because he's wrong. It's because we are. But let me just say there's another reason why we might find this really hard. And we might find it hard to praise God for. And that is because this may be very close to home for us. I suspect the reality is that most of us have experienced the situation of someone very dear to us dying. Knowing that they have rejected the Lord Jesus. And that makes it very difficult at times, doesn't it, to praise God for the judgment to come. Well, can I say, if that is you today, I know how that feels as well. Um, a few years ago, 
my father died. And even though I told him the gospel many times, he never turned in repentance and faith, not as far as I'm aware. And that is very hard for me to bear. And yet, as I've wrestled with that, and as I've prayed about that, as I've come, brought that to the Lord, I can honestly testify that I, I feel a, a very strange kind of peace about the knowledge that one day I will see things as God sees them. And I know that whatever happens, justice will be done. And it will be right. And for all eternity, somehow I will be able to praise God for that. It's not easy. But there is, to be, there is peace to be found in that. How does all this inform our prayers? Well, brothers and sisters, we've kind of gone off on Paul's tangent. Let's bring it back, shall we? Um, as we give thanks, uh, as we give thanks for the work of God that we see in people's lives, for their faith, for their love, for their endurance. Well, at the same time, let's be open to the Spirit prompting us to praise God for some some aspect of His character, some way that we see Him at work in people's lives, and let's go with that. Let's go off on that tangent and praise God for whatever element of his character it is that he prompts us to see. Thirdly, and finally, we've, we've thought about uh, thanking God, we've thought about praising God. Finally, verses 11, 12, ask God. Look down at verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you. And the this, I think, is the judgment that is to come. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Uh, What is Paul's constant prayer for the church in Thessalonica? What could be our constant prayer? for ourselves and for our families and for our church and those around us. Well, there's two things here. Firstly, he prays that they would be found worthy of the calling that they had received. And I think this is really a prayer for more of the same. This is a prayer that there would be more faith growing in their lives, more love exhibited for one another, more endurance in the face of trials and suffering. This is a prayer that they would keep going to the end. And that on that final day they would be counted worthy of the calling that they received. But he doesn't just pray that. He prays a second thing. And I just think this is the most beautiful and uh, inspiring prayer. I'd I'd never really read this carefully before um, and thought about it. But look at what he prays. Verse 11. He continues... That he prays that by that God, by His power, may bring to fruition every desire for goodness, and your every deed prompted by faith. Gareth was talking in this morning's uh, service about the encouragement that he had uh, looking at CCH News this week and seeing all these things that are going on in the life of our church, because people in our church have been prompted to to do things that are good. They have good desires. There are good works, good deeds, prompted by their faith. 
and they're coming to fruition. They're not just ideas in their minds. They're things that are actually coming about. And as I have conversations with people in this church, I find it so encouraging. All the things that people desire, for we think about our three circles, right? All the things that people desire to be realities in this church, for, for our relationships individually to grow with our Heavenly Father. All the things that people in this church desire for our relationships with one another to grow and deepen and our love to grow. All the, the things that people desire for us to reach out and take this gospel out to this town with so many who are lost and who currently are rejecting God. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that those things don't just end in desires. Let's be praying that our desires would come to fruition. The desires, the good desires of, of those in our families, that the good desires of those in our church wouldn't just be ideas, but they'd be things that come to pass. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? Isn't that a beautiful thing to pray for one another? Is that what you want to see? Do you want to see the good desires that the Spirit is working in people's hearts and minds come to fruition in Harpenden? Well then let's pray for it. Let's talk to one another about it. Let's share what the Lord is putting on our hearts. And let's pray for one another. As we close, let me ask you, Will you join me in praying for this church as Paul prays for the Thessalonian church? Will we pray for one another? Will we pray in thanks to God for the faith that you see in other people here? For the love that you see in other people here? For the, for the times that you see people who are suffering terrible things? And there are people in our fellowship who are suffering terrible things and yet they're pressing on anyway. Will you praise God for those things? Will you allow yourself to be led off in tangents of praise to God as you see his work in the lives of people in this church and glorify him for the wonderful things that he does and the wonderful person that he is? And will you ask God for more of the same and to bring to fruition the good desires of people's hearts in this place? And as you do so, do so knowing that not only will God use those prayers to transform the lives of people in this church, but he will bring glory to Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 12, how Paul closes this passage. <coughs> we pray this, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good goal, isn't it? Let's bow our heads and pray now. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, those of us who are your children long to pray and wish that we were better and more devoted to private prayer. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for this example, this pattern that the Apostle Paul has given us in this letter, that your Holy Spirit has given us in this letter. Lord, please, would you help us to take this example and to use it in our own prayer lives before you. Lord, please, would you help us to be people who are constantly giving thanks. Help us, as we see 
evidence of faith and of love and of endurance in our own lives and in the lives of those in our families and in the life of our church and in the lives of those we hear about throughout the rest of the world. Lord, as we see that evidence, would we recognise that those things come from you and would we praise you for faith and for love and for perseverance. Lord, we pray that our prayers wouldn't be so hurried that as we give thanks to you for those things that we see, that, that we would be willing to listen to the prompting of your spirit to praise you in other ways as well. Praise you even in the things that we find hard, such as the judgment that is to come. Lord, please, would you help us to humble ourselves before you? And would you help us to see things the way that you see them? Lord, please, lead us into times of adoration and praise in our private prayer. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to ask of you. Help us to pray big prayers, bold prayers, for more of the same, more faith, more love, more perseverance in trials. But Lord, we pray in great thankfulness for all of those good desires that you've put on the hearts of your people, particularly here at Christchurch Harpenden. Lord, we pray that those things wouldn't just be good ideas, <coughs> that they wouldn't just be things that we want to do, but, but that you would bring those things to fruition, that those would be things that we do so that we may bring glory to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and that we may take the gospel out to this town for the good of the lost. Lord, we thank you so much for this time in your word and we pray that you would transform us by it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we see in this passage that this transformation doesn't come from us. It comes from you and from your grace. And so we pray that it would please you to transform us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Amen. Well, the glory of Jesus is the goal of our prayer. And the glory of, the Jesus, the glory of Jesus is the goal of our singing as well. So we're going to sing now uh, and bring glory to him. <coughs> Thank you.